The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. The scripture reading for today is Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Again, Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Gary, one of the pastors here at Park Church. I'm looking forward to getting into this passage with you. I'm going to be honest. It is a heavy passage about a really sensitive topic, Um, but I also feel like it's a really beautiful passage, and it has incredible relevance uh, for everybody in our community, not just for married couples, uh, but for all of us as we consider what does it look like uh, to be people that experience the covenant love of God, uh, that know his love, but also reflect his love in this world, and so uh, we're going to need to pray. But before we do, I want to acknowledge something else. Um, as we talk about marriage and divorce and Jesus's wisdom uh, in these concepts and, and situations, there's some really delicate situations happening in our own church family, maybe in your own life. Uh, you might be walking through some really hard stuff. You might be sitting next to a spouse where you feel some tension in your marriage, some coldness in your marriage, uh, whether that's unspoken or spoken. Uh, And I just want to acknowledge to all of you that Jesus sees you, that Jesus is with you, and he's for you. And so I want to encourage you just to to take a deep breath. Um, The Jesus that's speaking in this passage is a God who is for you, he's a God who's with you, and he's a God who wants your life to flourish. He wants your marriage to flourish. And so uh, we're going to pray to this Jesus, and I just want to encourage you again. uh, He's with you. He's for you. So take a deep breath and open your heart up to what he might want to lead you in today. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we want to say thank you for being a faithful God. Um, Thank you for being so, so faithful to us. Thank you for being with us right now, that we know that you're for us, you're not against us, um, that you're present and not far away. And so would you give us hope today? Would you speak in power today? Would you fill us up with your Holy Spirit all around this city uh, that we would be a people that know your faithful, beautiful covenant love and reflect your faithful love in all of our relationships. Um, So would you fill us up again with an awareness of your presence, an awareness of your grace and your mercy, and would you transform us to reflect your love in this world? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, Marriage, like most things in this world is both beautiful and broken. It's, it's beautiful and it's broken. Uh, kind of for all the, the bad rap that marriage gets in pop culture right now, think about any sitcom of your choosing, marriage gets a really bad rap in most of our, our pop cultural situations. It still continues to be today one of the most desired relationships and a very central relationship in the human experience and in our society. 
In fact, it's something that, that many people would say gives the context for some of the deepest experiences of love and joy and intimacy available in the human experience. And at the same time, at the same time, marriage is really broken. For all of the, the beautiful opportunities for love and intimacy, it's also a context for some of the deepest experiences of pain, uh, challenges and difficulty and heartbreak. And as you think about your own story or maybe the story of your family, you can see those things. You can see beautiful things potentially and also broken, broken things. And I think in a situation like this where we find ourselves in the middle of a very unique global situation, a pandemic where we are being required to stay in our homes for long periods of time with marriages or roommates or other people that we're in relationship with, we are in a situation that is both highlighting and in some ways intensifying tensions and difficulties and struggles that were probably already present but are being brought to the surface in some really challenging ways. Now, there are certainly people that are experiencing in the midst of this time really sweet opportunities to connect and to go deeper in their marriage. But as I just experience and as I listen and as I pay attention to what's happening in our community and around the world, I'm seeing a lot of people talk about the difficulties and the struggles that they're experiencing as well. Um, If you just pay attention a little bit to some of the, the media that's coming out right now, Um, There are so many articles and news feeds and blog posts and podcasts that are talking about how to make your marriage survive in the midst of kind of this coronavirus season. Here's a couple, there are dozens of these. I just looked even over the past couple days and in the past two weeks, dozens and dozens of articles like this. Five ways to divorce-proof your marriage. How to avoid becoming a coronavirus divorce statistic. 11 ways to stay married amid coronavirus concerns, right? These articles go on and on and on and they have tips and tricks and ideas and some of them are really, really wise and thoughtful and give some great practices for healthy rhythms in a marriage that are really valuable. You should read them and pay attention to them. Um, But it it reveals a couple of different things. Um, First of all, the prevalence of these articles are revealing a reality that in this season, there are very unique challenges and tensions that are coming into marital situations. And there are a lot of reasons for that. A lot of times there are tensions that are already kind of in the air and in the culture and in the dynamic of a marriage. But in this season, there are less opportunities to distract from that, right? You're not going out to all the restaurants in the evening. You're not as socially engaged with other people. You're not doing sporting events and evening events. You're not going off to work every day. You're not getting that same sort of space that maybe you had before to kind of be alone and process and feel. Um, So there's both kind of the removal of distractions and the removal of space. And at the exact same time, there is a presence of anxiety and stress at a really unique level. I mean, stress levels and anxiety levels are really high. And that lead us to be, in this season, a little more emotionally exhausted. Uh, We can be emotionally exhausted people where our emotions are a little more thin. We're quicker to irritability into frustration. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed or maybe depressed. We're going through a global trauma, an emotionally traumatic situation that's wearing on all of us in very different ways. And so to be in close quarters without distractions, where you already have pain and wounds and layers of conflict from the past that are all coming together, it's a recipe for tension. And so these articles are revealing that reality, that this is a recipe to highlight and augment and exacerbate tensions that have been around maybe even before. But secondly, what this prevalence of these articles is is showing is that in our culture, divorce is seen as a very 
acceptable, a socially acceptable, even though painful and maybe not entirely desirable, but a socially acceptable way out of marital discomfort. Divorce is seen as a socially acceptable way out of marital discomfort. So you're seeing statistics already in our culture, divorce statistics are really, really high. I think most statistics these days say that 40 to 50% of marriages will end in a divorce. But what most people are saying, marriage experts, divorce, divorce lawyers are saying that there's an expectation and already evidence that those numbers in the next few months will, will surge. They will surge. And, I, and I'm seeing that even just in, in my kind of role in life as a pastor, uh, just watching and kind of experiencing and listening to people that are experiencing tensions in their own marriages and difficulties. And it can be wearing and it can be exhausting. And when you're already emotionally tired, you can begin to feel very hopeless. And so the question we have to ask is when you're feeling hopeless, when hope in your marriage is waning, is divorce the the best way out? Is divorce this kind of like really good option to pursue happiness or to avoid discomfort? And the question I want to ask is, does Jesus have anything to say about it? Um, Does Jesus have anything to say about it? And And he does. And what he has to say is actually really, really beautiful. What Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount is not coming to shame or to condemn anybody or to give arbitrary rules that are supposed to suffocate people and destroy your life and leave you in bondage. He's doing the opposite. He's actually inviting people to this way of life that leads to human flourishing. And in this particular passage, he's promoting a vision of covenant love, of covenant faithfulness, that inside of a marriage covenant, we're supposed to experience the covenant love of God and to display the covenant love of God. So at the very core of this passage, Jesus is entering in as the very embodiment of God's steadfast, faithful, patient, gracious, persevering covenant love. And as the embodiment of that love, he wants you, whether you're married or single, whether you're walking through a difficult time or you've been divorced, whether you're enjoying the the kind of like the beauty of marriage or you're getting ready to enter into a new marriage, whoever you are, Jesus's hope is that you would experience his steadfast, faithful love for you. And that as you experience it, you would put that love on display in all of your relationships. And in particular, that you'd put that covenant love on display in the context of of marriage. And when the people of God do that, we shine as a light in the world. We shine as light in the darkness to show God's kind of love through our marriage and our friendships and our relationships in this world. And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at this passage and it's a little bit complicated. So we're going to kind of dive in and then we're going to take a big step back and look at the context, the kind of historical context and the cultural context to understand what exactly Jesus is saying and why it matters for all of us. And so if you will, we're going to look at uh, starting Matthew chapter 5, Again, we're diving in to verse 31. Jesus says this. He says, Now it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what Jesus is saying is, is a little bit confusing on the first read. And so I just want to back way up a little bit and get kind of into the sort of thought world of Jesus' own experience and of kind of modern Judaism that Jesus is speaking into. Uh, in Jesus' conception, and this is from the Hebrew Bible going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, marriage was designed by God to be a lifelong covenant relationship 
between a man and a woman where they know one another, where they love one another, and they're faithful to one another till death do them part. It's what it's designed to be. And it was designed not for its own sake alone and to give joy to human beings alone, but it was designed to actually be a picture of God's covenant, faithful, and steadfast love for his people. So the marriage relationship was designed by God to be a picture of God's covenant love for his people in this world. And Jesus is kind of entering into that, that space and he's speaking into a situation where people had taken a very broken view of marriage and it had brought destruction and pain on a number of different people, in particular in this society, had brought a lot of pain and destruction to the experiences of women. So to understand kind of what he's saying, we need, we need to back way up. The first line in this passage, it says this, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is uh, a more or less a quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And so I want to I actually talk about what's happening in that passage because it helps us make sense of what Jesus is doing here. So we're going to put on like a Bible nerd hat and we're going to do a little bit of like Bible study work here to go way back. Um, so the people of God that God has redeemed and called out of Egypt, he's giving them these commandments, these instructions for what flourishing life looks like as the people of his kingdom. And in the Ten Commandments, he's actually instructing people to, to this way of life that when they live according to God's wisdom and God's instruction, they experience joy as his people, but also shine as salt and light in the world. And it's what he's called them to. So in the Seventh Commandment, there's this command to not commit adultery. We talked about that a little bit last week, and it's also relevant for this passage. Now, the command to not commit adultery wasn't this mere prohibition. It was instructions to kind of fight for and to promote for the people of God an understanding of marriage as this sacred, beautiful covenant relationship that shouldn't be broken or breached through unfaithfulness. You're supposed to show God's faithful love in the covenant of a marriage. And so what happened after the Ten Commandments is the people of God were, were kind of wrestling with how do these things apply to a number of different scenarios. And what you'll experience all throughout the rest of what's called the Torah or the first five books of the Bible is a bunch of case law, a bunch of situational instructions to say, how do you apply these basic concepts to very specific and sometimes complicated situations? And so what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 24 Verse one is we're experiencing one of those case laws. And the case laws are, are really interesting, right? It'll be like, hey, you shouldn't uh, covet another man's property. You shouldn't steal. But it's like, all right, does it count as, as stealing if you're standing on the edge of a pit and you take your neighbor's ox and you accidentally bump your neighbor's ox into a pit and, and the ox dies? What should we do then, right? Because not stealing doesn't immediately apply. So there's case law about that. Then there's case law like, okay, what if I was a little more honest and I purposely pushed the ox into the pit. What happens then? And there's case law about that, right? We're, we're taking these laws and we're applying them to very specific and sometimes very bizarre situations. And this is one of those times. In, Deut in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're actually experiencing a case law that's going to take a hypothetical scenario and say, how do we think about marriage and divorce in this kind of context? And so here's what it says. In Deuteronomy, this is Deuteronomy chapter 24, Verse one, it says, when a man takes a wife and he marries her, if then, hypothetically, hypothetical scenario, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found, catch this phrase, some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and then she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, 
And the latter man, this is now her second husband, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or another scenario, or if that second husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. Right? Super bizarre situation. And I don't have time to get into all of the details. But what's so important about this this passage is it wasn't seen as a command or it wasn't supposed to be a command or a permission to get divorced in certain scenarios. It was taking a hypothetical scenario saying if somebody did divorce their their spouse, let's say he didn't find favor in her or she didn't find favor in his eyes or he found some indecency in her and he gives her this certificate of divorce and then she marries a a second person and that person divorces her, you know, and now this first husband wants to come back and marry her. Um, What should happen then? And the law is that first husband can't marry that that woman who he had been married to previously. Now, part of what's happening without getting into, into all the details is it's actually advocating for the rights of women in a cultural situation that had led them to really destructive and demeaned experiences. It's a really powerful passage. But what's important is it's not trying to give these grounds, permissible grounds for divorce. But it's the only place in the first five books of the Bible, in the, in the Torah, or God's instructions for the people of Israel, where divorce is talked about. And so later rabbis would mine this passage to say, to try to understand how they should think about and how they should teach other people about divorce. And that conversation between rabbis that were trying to interpret this passage carried on for generations after generations. So fast forward now, several hundred years, and we get to the early first century, right? All right, Bible nerd hat's still on. I get it. Hang with me. We're almost there. I think it will help us understand the passage. So we're in the early first century, and there are a couple of different rabbis that were very, very prominent. They were teachers of the law. They would interpret the law and instruct others that how to understand God's word. One of those rabbis is a guy named Shammai. Another rabbi is a guy named Hillel. And they were the two most kind of like uh, predominant rabbis, esteemed rabbis in the first century. And in this experience, they actually agreed on almost everything about the Torah. They agreed on, on almost every point, except for a few. And one of the points of disagreement was this passage. This passage, Deuteronomy 24, 1, they had seen it as giving permission in certain circumstances for divorce. So Rabbi Shammai and his followers taught that this indecency was a reason for divorce in the way that he interpreted this indecency. If a man finds some indecency in his wife was sexual unfaithfulness of some kind. So the way he interpreted it is if his wife was unfaithful in some way, sexually unfaithful in some way, if there are witnesses that could affirm that reality, then, then he would have permission to divorce his spouse. And that was one of the major interpretations. But the interpretation from Rabbi Hillel, which was the prevailing and predominant cultural interpretation, that some indecency meant anything that displeased the husband. So if if anything displeased the husband, and he said this specifically, if she burns a meal, then you can divorce her. Now, what's, what's crazy about that is that there were no legal grounds for divorce for a woman to divorce her husband in that culture. None. And so men in that culture had embraced the teaching of Rabbi Hillel saying, if my wife displeases me in any way whatsoever, then I am justified before God to divorce her and give her a certificate of divorce. And that is what had permeated their society and led to a really destructive experience. I mean, can you imagine this kind of cultural experience? Like if, if you know, your spouse, you know, 
like squeezes the toothpaste from the, the wrong end of the tube, right? If, if, if your spouse kind of like leaves the, the toilet seat up, like if your wife won't watch your favorite rom-com, right? Or if your husband won't write, watch the next, you know, series or the next season of Jack Ryan, right? Like these were reasons why people were saying, if, if anything displeases you, you have, you have the right and you are okay before God to divorce your spouse. And it was actually really brutal. Again, this was not something that was available to women. It was only available to men. And it was being grossly abused in a way that was so destructive for women, for families, and for their society. And it was so pervasive. And so Jesus is speaking into that reality. If, if a woman had been divorced by her husband in that culture, it would put her in an, an impossible economic situation. Um, the idea of an independent woman thriving in the Greco-Roman world or in Jewish culture was a very, very rare thing. There are a couple of occasions in history where we see women thriving as independent women, but their structure was set up to make it not conducive at all for the thriving of a woman outside of the context of a marriage in that family structure. And so women, once somebody had divorced their wife, was put in a very impossible situation economically. There's also social stigma and there was a moral stigma and there is also a legal requirement from the Roman government for that woman then to enter into another marriage as quickly as possible, whether or not she felt like she should have been divorced, whether or not that divorce was justified before God or would have felt valid before God. And so what Jesus is saying in this passage, to get back to the heart of it, Jesus is saying that when a man divorces his spouse, except for in the case of sexual immorality or sexual unfaithfulness in a marriage, when a man divorces his spouse because something about her is displeasing, and you've put her in an, an impossible situation. You're actually forcing her into this situation to remarry, in which case both her and her husband, because the divorce should have never been kind of right before God in the first place, you're putting her and her second husband in this position of committing adultery. Now, Jesus isn't trying to condemn them in the passage. He's actually putting the weight on the husband who divorced his spouse, who abandoned his spouse for some sort of selfish, demeaning, inappropriate and destructive reason. And so he's challenging this, this sort of culture of approaching marriage as a thing to be entered into for the sake of my own gratification, as this sort of opt-in, opt-out opportunity that I'm gonna enter into marriage when it feels good to me, I'm gonna stay faithful to my marriage when it's beneficial to me, but as soon as it costs me something or as soon as it's displeasing to me, I'm gonna push away from it and I'm gonna abandon my covenant commitments with my spouse because now this kind of situation isn't working well for me in the way that I wanted it to. And Jesus is speaking into that reality, which is still today the pervasive reality in our world. Now, there are social stigmas around divorce that I think are really, really unhealthy. There are painful experiences for people that have been divorced and watching Jesus throughout his ministry care for women who have been divorced, love on and forgive and show grace towards people who have been caught in adultery and had been struggling through things like prostitution and whatever led to prostitution. Watching Jesus care for and honor and forgive and cleanse and dignify and esteem and welcome people who had experienced broken things is a really powerful reality to hang on to. And what he's doing in this passage, though, is promoting a vision of covenant love that is transformative. That God's design for marriage is to put on display his covenant faithfulness. Not an opt-in, opt-out situation, but a, I am giving myself to you, to love you, to care for you, to, to, to know you, and to support you, and to be here for you till death do us part. Because when we do that, we're actually putting God's love on display. 
Now, the reality is we are, we are broken people, right? We're broken people, and so we stumble over that. And so the, the beauty of a marriage relationship is that it's supposed to be a context where we can be naked and unashamed in every sense of that, that we can be seen in all of the good things that God's made us to be and all of the, the broken stuff that we bring into this world and into our life and the pain and the difficulty and the sin, that we would be seen and loved. And when you are loved, even in your failures, even in your blemishes, even in your, your falterings and your stumblings and your sin and your mistakes and in your failures, when you're loved, it is the most transformative experience in the world to be loved to be loved on your journey, loved in your wandering, loved in your failures, loved in your brokenness, to be loved faithfully, securely, is the most transformative experience in the world. And Jesus is fighting for it. He is fighting for it. He wants his people to experience that kind of love in his kingdom. And he wants our marriages in this world to show that kind of love to the world. That God is not an opt-in, opt-out God. He is faithful and persevering and gracious and forgiving and kind and merciful and patient. He's not irritable. He doesn't abandon us when we struggle and when we doubt and when we turn and when we wander and when we're hopeless and when we're struggling. He doesn't abandon us. He stays faithful to us. And Jesus is saying, I want you to experience that love whether you're right now in the middle of a marriage that's struggling, that God loves you. He is for you and he is gracious. And as you experience that in the depths of who you are, you're actually equipped by his spirit, empowered by the very presence of God to show that love in your marriage. When you experience that as you've somebody that's been divorced and you've struggled and you've walked through hard things, when you experience God's faithful love, that he's not against you, he honors you. He's for you. He's washed you and cleansed you. When you know that even in your failure, even in, in your turning, and, I, and as I say failure, I know that there are so many complicated scenarios, so many complicated scenarios and really painful and heartbreaking and difficult ones. But without getting into all the details of those complications, to know that God is for you. He's not against you. He loves you. He loves you. And that's what Jesus came to this world to do. As you think about your life as a single in this world, Marriage isn't ultimate. Marriage is a beautiful gift, but your singleness is a beautiful gift as well. Marriage shows you a picture. It's supposed to show you a picture of God's covenant love for you. But God loves you, loves you, loves you. In your singleness, he's gifted you and given you this opportunity to experience his love and to show his love in really profound and powerful ways that are a gift to the world. Not second rate in his kingdom, but you experience the full covenant love of God. And when we as a people when we receive the love of Jesus, when we actually turn to him and we acknowledge that we've turned, we've shown unfaithfulness to him. We've wandered from him. We haven't loved him the way that he's loved us. We've doubted and struggled and failed. But when we see the depth of his love, that he carried our brokenness to a tree and he suffered and died to demonstrate God's love for us, to demonstrate God's faithful covenant love for us, he counted the cost. He took our sin upon his own shoulders and he suffered and he died for us. When you experience that kind of love and you are honest about your failure and your brokenness, as the Spirit of God brings that into the depth of who you are, into the depths of your soul, he actually equips us to be people to show that love, not only in our marriages, but in all of our human relationships. And when we do that, we get to shine as light in the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to pray right now 
that you would pour out your spirit on individuals in our church family, anybody watching this right now, that you would pour out your spirit on them. That in their discomfort right now, in their wrestling right now, whether it's conviction or frustration or confusion, that they would know that you are for them, that you are faithful, faithful, faithful in our struggling and our doubting and our wondering. That as you wash us and cleanse us, as we turn to you and experience your love, there's no second-rate person in your family. There's no second-rate citizen in your kingdom that we are known and we are loved and we are accepted freely and fully. And so we say thank you, Jesus, for your covenant love towards us. In Christ's name, amen.